Chapter Five, Section One of the History of Mister Polly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelus. Chapter Five, Mister Polly takes a vacation. One. Mr. Polly returned to Clapham from the funeral celebration, prepared for trouble, and took his dismissal in a manly spirit. "'You've merely anticipated me by a hair,' he said politely, and he told them in the dormitory that he meant to take a little holiday before his next crib, though a certain inherited reticence suppressed the fact of the legacy. "'Oh, you'll do that all right,' said Ascoff the head of the boot-shop. It's quite the fashion just at present. Six weeks in wonderful Wood Street. They're running excursions. A little holiday. That was the form his sense of wealth took first, that it made a little holiday possible. Holidays were his life, and the rest merely adulterated living and now he might take a little holiday and have money for railway fares and money for meals and money for inns. But he wanted someone to take the holiday with. For a time he cherished the design of hunting up Parsons, getting him to throw up his situation and going with him to Stratford-on-Avon and Shrewsbury and the Welsh Mountains and the Wye and a lot of places like that for a really gorgeous careless, illimitable old holiday of a month. But, alas, Parsons had gone from the St. Paul's churchyard outfitter long ago, and left no address. Mr. Polly tried to think he would be almost as happy wandering alone, but he knew better. He dreamt of casual encounters with delightful, interesting people by the wayside, even romantic encounters. Such things happened in Chaucer and Bocashoe. They happened with extreme facility in Mr. Richard Le Gallienne's very detrimental book, The Quest of the Golden Girl, which he had read at Canterbury, but he had no confidence they would happen in England to him. When, a month later, he came out of the Clapham side door at last into the bright sunshine of a fine London day, with a dazzling sense of limitless freedom upon him, he did nothing more adventurous than order the cabman to drive to Waterloo, and there take a ticket for Easewood. He wanted—what did he want most in life? I think his distinctive craving is best expressed as fun, fun in companionship. He had already spent a pound or two upon three select feasts to his fellow assistants, sprat-suppers they were, and they had been a great and very successful Sunday pilgrimage to Richmond by Wandswood and Wimbledon's Open Common, a trailing garrulous company walking about a solemnly happy host, to wonderful cold meat and salad at the Roebuck, a bowl of punch, punch and a bill to correspond. But now it was a weekday, and he went down to Easewood with his bag and portmanteau in a solitary compartment, and looked out of the window upon a world in which every possible congenial seemed either toiling or in a situation 
or else looking for one with a gnawing and hopelessly preoccupying anxiety. He stared out of the window at the exploitation roads of suburbs and rows of houses all very much alike, either emphatically and impatiently to let, or full of rather busy, unsociable people. Near Wimbledon he had a glimpse of golf links, and saw two elderly gentlemen who, had they chosen, might have been gentlemen of grace and leisure, addressing themselves to smite little hunted white balls, great distances, with the utmost bitterness and dexterity. Mr. Polly couldn't understand them. Every road, he remarked, as freshly as though he had never observed it before, was bordered by inflexible palings or iron fences or severely disciplined hedges. He wondered if perhaps abroad there might be beautifully careless, unenclosed high-roads. Perhaps, after all, the best way of taking a holiday is to go abroad. He was haunted by the memory of what was either a half-forgotten picture or a dream. A carriage was drawn up by the wayside, and four beautiful people, two men and two women, graciously dressed, were dancing a formal, ceremonious dance full of bows and curtsies, to the music of a wandering fiddler they had encountered. They had been driving one way and he walking another, a happy encounter with this obvious result. They might have come straight out of happy Thelim, whose motto is, Do what thou wilt. The driver had taken his two sleek horses out, they grazed unchallenged, and he sat on a stone, clapping time with his hand while the fiddler played. The shade of the trees did not altogether shut out the sunshine. The grass in the wood was lush and full of still daffodils. The turf they danced on was starred with daisies. Mr. Polly, dear heart, firmly believed that things like that could and did happen somewhere. Only it puzzled him that morning that he never saw them happening. Perhaps they happened south of Guildford. Perhaps they happened in Italy. Perhaps they ceased to happen a hundred years ago. Perhaps they happened just round the corner, on weekdays when all good Mr. Pollys are safely shut up in shops. And so dreaming of delightful impossibilities till his heart ached for them, he was rattled along in the suburban train to Johnson's discreet home, and the briskly stimulating welcome of Mrs. Johnson. 2. Mr. Polly translated his restless craving for joy and leisure into Harold Johnsonese by saying that he meant to look about him for a bit before going into another situation. It was a decision Johnson very warmly approved. It was arranged that Mr. Polly should occupy his former room, and board with the Johnsons in consideration of a weekly payment of eighteen shillings, and the next morning Mr. Polly went out early and reappeared with a purchase, a safety bicycle which he proposed to study and master in the sandy lane below the Johnsons' house. But over the struggles that preceded his mastery it is humane to draw a veil. And also Mr. Polly bought a number of books, Rabelais for his own, 
and the arabian nights the works of stern a pile of tales from blackwood cheap in a second-hand bookshop the plays of william shakespeare a second-hand copy of belloc's road to rome an odd volume of purchase his pilgrims and the life and death of jason better get yourself a good book on bookkeeping said johnson turning over perplexing pages a belated spring was now advancing with great strides to make up for lost time sunshine and a stirring wind were poured out over the land fleets of towering clouds sailed upon tremendous missions across the blue seas of heaven and presently mr polly was riding a little unstably along unfamiliar surrey roads wondering always what was round the next corner and marking his blackthorn and looking out for the first white flower buds of the may he was perplexed and distressed as indeed are all right-thinking souls that there is no may in early may he did not ride at the even pace sensible people use who have marked out a journey from one place to another and settled what time it will take them he rode at variable speeds and always as though he was looking for something that missing left life attractive still but a little wanting in significance and sometimes he was so unreasonably happy he had to whistle and sing and sometimes he was incredibly but not at all painfully sad his indigestion vanished with air and exercise and it was quite pleasant in the evening to stroll about the garden with johnson and discuss plans for the future johnson was full of ideas moreover mr polly had marked the road that led to stamton that rising populous suburb and as his bicycle legs grew strong his wheel with a sort of inevitableness carried him toward the row of houses in a back street in which his larkins cousins made their home together he was received with great enthusiasm the street was a dingy little street a cul-de-sac of very small houses in a row each with an almost flattened bow window and a blistered brown door with a black knocker he poised his bright new bicycle against the window and knocked and stood waiting and felt himself in his straw hat and black serge suit a very pleasant and prosperous-looking figure the door was opened by cousin miriam she was wearing a bluish print dress that brought out a kind of sallow warmth in her skin and although it was nearly four o'clock in the afternoon her sleeves were tucked up as if for some domestic work above the elbows showing her rather slender but very shapely yellowish arms the loosely pinned bodice confessed a delicately rounded neck for a moment she regarded him with suspicion and a faint hostility and then recognition dawned in her eyes why she said it's cousin elfrid thought i'd look you up he said fancy you coming to see us like this she answered they stood confronting one another for a moment while miriam collected herself for the unexpected emergency explorations menanderings said mr polly 
indicating the bicycle. Miriam's face betrayed no appreciation of the remark. "'Wait a minute,' she said, coming to a rapid decision, "'and I'll tell Ma.' She closed the door on him abruptly, leaving him a little surprised in the street. "'Ma!' he heard her calling, and swift speech followed, the import of which he didn't catch. Then she reappeared. It seemed but an instant, but she was changed. The arms had vanished into the sleeves, the apron had gone, a certain pleasing disorder of the hair had been at least reproved. "'I didn't mean to shut you out,' she said, coming out upon the step. "'I just told Ma. How are you, Elfrid? You are looking well. I didn't know you rode a bicycle. Is it a new one?' She leaned upon his bicycle. "'Bright it is,' she said. "'What a trouble you must have to keep it clean!' Mr. Polly was aware of a rustling transit across the passage, and of the house suddenly full of hushed but strenuous movement. "'It's uh, plated, mostly,' said Mr. Polly. "'What do you carry in that little bag thing?' she asked, and then branched off to— we're all in a mess to-day, you know. It's my cleaning day to-day. I'm not a bit tidy, I know, but I do like to have a go at things now and then. You've got to take us as you find us, Elfrid. Mercy, we wasn't out. She paused. She was talking against time. I'm glad to see you again, she repeated. Couldn't keep away, said Mr. Polly gallantly. Had to come over and see my pretty cousins again. Miriam did not answer for a moment. She coloured deeply. You do say things, she said. She stared at Mr. Polly, and his unfortunate sense of fitness made him nod his head towards her, regard her firmly with a round brown eye, and add impressively, I don't say which of them. Her answering expression made him realise for an instant the terrible dangers he trifled with. Avidity flared up in her eyes. Minnie's voice came happily to dissolve the situation. "'Hello, Alfred,' she said from the doorstep. Her hair was just passably tidy, and she was a little effaced by a red blouse, but there was no mistaking the genuine brightness of her welcome. He was to come in to tea, and Mrs. Larkins, exuberantly genial, in a floriferous but dingy flannel dressing-gown, appeared to confirm that. He brought in his bicycle and put it in the narrow, empty passage, and everyone crowded into a small, untidy kitchen, whose table had been hastily cleared of the debris of the midday repast. "'You must come in here,' said Mrs. Larkins for Miriam's turning out the front room. I never did see such a girl for cleaning up. Miriam's holiday's a scrub. You've caught us on the hop, as the saying is, but welcome all the same. Pity Annie's at work to-day. She won't be home till seven. Miriam put chairs and attended to the fire. Minnie edged up to Mr. Polly and said, I am glad to see you again, Alfred, with a warm, contiguous intimacy that betrayed a broken tooth. Mrs. Larkins got out the tea-things, and descanted on the noble simplicity of their lives, 
and how he mustn't mind our simple ways. They enveloped Mr. Polly with a geniality that intoxicated his amiable nature. He insisted upon helping lay the things, and created enormous laughter by pretending not to know where plates and knives and cups ought to go. "'Whom I going to sit next?' he said, and developed voluminous amusement by attempts to arrange the plates so that he could rub elbows with all three. Mrs. Larkins had to sit down in the Windsor chair by the grandfather clock, which was dark with dirt and not going, to laugh at her ease with his well-acted perplexity. They got seated at last, and Mr. Polly struck a vein of humour in telling them how he learned to ride the bicycle. He found the mere repetition of the word wobble sufficient to produce almost indistinguishable mirth. "'No foreseeing little accidentalous misadventures,' he said. "'None whatsoever.' Giggle from Minnie. "'Stout, elderly gentleman. Shirt-sleeves, large straw waste-paper basket sort of hat. Starts to cross the road, going to the oil-shop. Product refreshment of oil-can. "'Don't say you ran him down,' said Mrs. Larkins, gasping. "'Don't say you ran him down, Alfred.' run him down not me madam i never run anything down wobble ring the bell wobble wobble laughter and tears no one's going to run him down here's the bell wobble gust of wind off comes the hat smack into the wheel wobble lord what's going to happen hat cross the road old gentleman after it bell shriek he ran into me didn't ring his bell, hadn't got a bell, just ran into me. Over I went, clinging to his venerable head. Down he went with me, clinging to him. Oil can bump, bump into the road. Interlude while Minnie is attended to, for crumb in the windpipe. Well, what happened to the old man with the oil can? said Mrs. Larkins. We sat about among the debris and had a bit of an argument. I told him he oughtn't to have come out wearing such a dangerous hat, flying at things. Said if he couldn't control his hat, he ought to leave it at home. High old jawbonious argument we had, I tell you. I tell you, sir. I tell you, sir. Wah, wah, wah. Infurious. But that's the sort of thing that's constantly happening, you know, on a bicycle. People run into you hens and cats and dogs and things everything seems to have its mark on you everything you never run into anything never so help me said mr polly very solemnly never he say hey, squeaked minnie i him and relapsed into a condition that urgently demanded back thumping don't be so silly said miriam thumping hard Mr. Polly had never been such a social success before. They hung upon his every word and laughed. What a family they were for laughter! And he loved laughter. The background he apprehended dimly. It was very much the sort of background his life had always been. There was a threadbare tablecloth on the table and the slop-basin and teapot did not go with the cups and saucers. The plates were different again. 
the knives worn down, the butter lived in a greenish glass dish of its own. Behind was a dresser hung with spare and miscellaneous crockery, with a work-box and an untidy work-basket. There was an ailing musk-plant in the window, and the tattered and blotched wallpaper was covered by bright-coloured grocer's almanacs. Feminine wrappings hung from pegs upon the door, and the floor was covered with a varied collection of fragments of oilcloth. The Windsor chair he sat in was unstable, which presently afforded material for humour. "'Steady, old nag,' he said. "'Whoa, my friskiacious palfrey!' "'Oh, the things he says! You'll never know what he won't say next!' End of chapter 5, section 1